Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition, a weekly news and public affairs show on WFIU. I'm WFIU WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire, sitting in this week for Bob and Mary Catherine. WFIU's Gretchen Frazee is also joining us here in the studio. Welcome, Gretchen. Today, we are talking about homelessness and the efforts to find the right approach to reduce homelessness. Joining us in the studio are Rodney Stockman. He's the Permanent Supportive Housing and Data Analyst with the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. And also Reverend Forrest Gilmore. He's the Executive Director of the Shalom Community Center. Reverend Timothy Fegg is the CEO of the Lighthouse Mission, and David Carrico with the Adult Services, he's the Adult Services Director, rather, of Centerstone. So thank you all so much for being here today. We want to make sure to get our listeners involved in the discussion, too. There are many ways you can submit your questions. You can, of course, call into the program. The number is 812-855-0811, toll-free at 1-877-285-WFIU. You can also visit us online at wfiu.org slash noon edition to be part of our live chat. So with that, we'll get things started. Obviously, a lot of conversations going on, it seems like all the time, about homelessness in the community and finding the best approach to combating it. I think maybe we'll just go down the panel and talk about, is the problem of homelessness, is it actually increasing or are we just hearing more about it? Does it seem that way? Rodney, maybe? Um, We have a lot of really good news on the horizon. Um, Homelessness in Indiana has decreased by 15% over the last three years. Um, And, you know, when you take into account that the country is emerging out of the worst recession in a generation, um, I think that's very powerful. And I think a lot of of the reasons why homelessness is going down is because we're increasing our interventions around it. And I'd really like to emphasize that homelessness is not... There's not one cause to homelessness, and so there's not one solution to homelessness. But we really need a full toolkit around homelessness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. David? Um, it, well, at least from our perspective at, at, the, uh, uh, at Centerstone, which is we, we serve uh, folks who are psychiatrically disabled uh, because of a mental illness, uh, uh, to me it doesn't appear like that uh, you know the things are decreasing in terms of the number of folks needing assistance and and uh, there's a there's a fair number of folks who you know uh, show up in town who are homeless and and uh, quite ill and and uh, many times uh, they end up at our local jail uh, at least for some portion of their stay here and and we try to intervene as best we can as Forrest and his staff do, uh, and others, uh, but it's it's a it's a it's a tough task, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, it's interesting. Our, we saw a real spike in Bloomington in terms of the numbers of people experiencing homelessness in our town in about 2011. Uh, the last two two years, we've seen that number stabilize and and slightly decline. Uh, but we did have a significant increase a few years ago, and so we can cont- and we continue to see around that same level of high numbers. So we're not seeing continued expansion, but we are still con- seeing a higher level than we saw before the recession took place. One of the great things and the exciting things about our community now is that we're starting to implement some of nationally recommended programs and nationally uh, supported programs that that actively have been effective at reducing homelessness in other parts of the country and other parts of the state. So we're, we're very excited to be a part of that and really working on uh, solutions and aiming towards solutions. Do we know why that spike occurred? Oh, I mean, there's a million reasons that one could associate that with, and it's hard to know exactly. There's there's uh, there's many hypotheses out there for for uh, for why that. Everything from 
um, the the economic downturn itself, which probably is the most compelling uh, reason, I would think, from my perspective. Um, but also people talk about uh, expansion of services as a possibility for increased uh, numbers. Um, some people talk about the change in, uh, in how um, jails and prisons are dealing with people and releasing people more quickly. And so some people talk about that as an issue. Um, I think there's probably a lot of different, uh, different uh, thoughts about what's going on. And the, th- the interesting thing is it's, that's not just happening here in, th- in cities, both throughout, throughout Indiana and throughout um, the nation. We're seeing, particularly in cities, we're seeing increases uh, of issues that people associate with homelessness, particularly panhandling and other issues like that. We're seeing that very widespread happening uh, in Indiana and cities in Indiana and other places throughout the country. Hmm. Yeah. You know, in Terre Haute, we have uh, we've experienced a, a large number of folks coming to the mission. Uh, it seems like uh, I've been there for 25 years and see just more and more every year, and uh, the needs are, are simply rising. Uh, it would be nice uh, to figure out a way, and that's what we're here today to discuss, is, you know, what plans uh, work and what don't. But uh, we, uh, we've taken on the task of building permanent housing. And so, you know, we have 56 units altogether now. And uh, that seems to work out quite well for us as they come through the mission and um, need a place on a permanent basis. We try to get them stabilized. Uh, a lot of mental health issues we see, uh, drug and alcohol issues uh, that come through. And trying to get them the help that they need to maintain a permanent residence is is a chore in itself for us but uh, we do have a success rate and we thank the lord for that it's uh, nice to be able to reach out and touch uh, their hearts and their lives and give them some encouragement and some hope and uh, you know just continue to plug away with that and permanent housing is part of the solution you're working towards too forced right absolutely yeah that's that's uh in partnership with with HUD and and the Community Foundation and other um, other organizations, IHCDA, we're going to bring a permanent supportive housing. We actually actively have a permanent supportive housing program in, in town now. There's currently uh, four individuals and one family that have been housed by the program, and two more are going in today, two more individuals that will be uh, go moving into new homes today. And uh, and we're very excited to have um, Crawford Apartments should be opening any time within the next few months, and we're very excited about that because that's uh, we'll be providing 25 uh, apartments for the program. So um, that's moving along, and, and we're looking forward to that. Can we back up just a second and define what permanent housing <clears throat> is? Because it seems to me that you would want people to not have permanent housing. You know, you would <laughs> want them to be able to be self-sustaining in the long run. So what does permanent housing actually mean? I mean... Permanent housing is actually a, um, a name of, of a HUD programs. I mean, the, the, and the idea of permanent housing is um, you and I have permanent housing. I mean, and, and we, we want people experiencing homelessness actually to, to reestablish their housing as quickly as possible because there's just study after study that is showing that once people get housed, they can access services better. They can access mainstream resources better and they can stabilize their lives better. I mean, I, I think when we first started um, what we call the Indiana Permanent Supportive Housing Initiative, which is to create 1,400 units of supportive housing, and let me just back up. When we say supportive housing, we need mean um, housing that's affordable and housing that has services um, mm-hmm. attached to it. And so um, what we're really trying to do is to create an infrastructure where people don't have to linger between jail and shelters and other kind of emergency systems, but kind of pull them out of that that system and get get them stably housed. Uh, And there's lots of routes to being permanently housed, but uh, um, I think the the main emphasis is to make sure people have housing so they can have stable, stable lives and they can access employment, access services, things like that. What are the criteria for getting into some of these permanent housing groups? Well, we have it at the Lighthouse Mission. As I said, we have 56 units, and the criteria is to have an income. And so we work with them towards gaining an income, whether it be a full-time gainful job. 
and or uh, supplemental security income, which we see a few have. We work with the uh, local housing authority through Section 8, and we actually lease the new homes and new apartments to the folks for 30% of their income. So it's very affordable housing for them. Uh, and uh, Section 8, the government program uh, through HUD, picks up the other money and helps out. And, um, you know, the permanent housing is that I have a place to live. You know, we see so many people who are living together, a couple families living together, and someone gets aggravated and moves out that family, and now they're homeless. And so basically if they're just staying with somebody, they're considered homeless. And so our permanent housing program is to provide for them as long as they can take care of the needs and the bills and take care of the home. Uh, we, we provide for them. We have uh, apartments that uh, we've had for 11 years, and I have a couple, two or three people who are still in there who have moved in when we first opened those. So that's permanent housing, and partnering with the state and working uh, through those programs has been a great uh, program for us. It's interesting to me that they have to have a job still in permanent housing. Well, our our program is a little different, and so and so and and it really depends on. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of people who aren't immersed in the work tend to um, try and pit programs against each other, and this model works, and this model doesn't work, and fight each other. And uh, as you know, advocates here all at the table, uh, we don't see it that way. We tend to see things as a comprehensive way, and it's who you're targeting, what are you trying to accomplish. And so our program, which and we should use the term, I think, permanent supportive housing, which is different than just permanent housing. Because it's not just housing that we're providing. It's also supportive right. services. So it's not just giving them a place to, to live and then move on and leave them alone. It's really, uh, it's really it's that combination of housing with supportive services that makes this thing work. You know, it's, without the supportive services, um, it, it really isn't an effective model. And so with the supportive services, it, it takes, goes on to another level. But our our program is slightly different than than the pastors, and and what we're approaching uh, is we're very specifically targeting the chronically homeless. Uh, so those are people with uh, long term homelessness due to disabilities, and we're very specifically targeting the most vulnerable people. So we're trying to find the people who are the most likely to. Um, uh, be at risk on the streets, the people that have been the homeless the longest, the people that um, have uh, the most severe disabilities, and to help bring them uh, into the stability of housing and uh, and the supportive services that surround them. So it's it's uh, these folks are incredibly vulnerable. Their average age of death is forty seven years old, mm-hmm. and so um, and so this kind of. Uh, uh, Intervention really is essential because these folks basically they, they die on the streets if we don't intervene and uh, and we see that and one of the great things about this program that I'm so excited about is we literally will see fewer people uh, dying on the streets and and I I I, I, I thank God for that. Yes. You, know? mm-hmm. yeah. you mentioned the supportive services and are when we're talking about these permanent supportive housing groups is this are these no barrier can anyone get I mean, if you if you're struggling with addictions, can you get into these this housing? In our program, that's that's uh, you can, and um, our again, um, we're looking at vulnerability, and so um, we're looking at the per, the most vulnerable people. So when we're talking about addiction. There's lots of different layers around substance abuse and addiction. Our program, I wouldn't. We don't ever call it low barrier. Or we call um, no barrier uh, because there's no such thing. But um, but the goal in a low barrier model or a housing first model is to try and produce uh, as few put as few obstacles between the service and the client as possible. Um, the model works because what it does is it gives you um, it emphasizes access and engagement. So by being close to the people, being close to the individuals, and and engaging them, you're much more likely to bring them into services than, if you will, just abandoning them or ignoring them. By that closeness, um, you help them do better. And this is shown statistically. This is not something we just made up because it feels good. It's something mm-hmm. that tons of evidence has been used to show that this actually works. Our model is low barrier in that there are behavioral requirements um, for people to maintain a home. They do have to um, 
they do have to um, be a good tenant, if you will. They do have to be responsible to their fellow tenants, to the property, to the neighbors and such. Um, there are other uh, examples of, and they all sign an occupancy agreement. They also are required to participate in weekly case management um, as, as, uh, as part of their um, move to, um, to stabilizing and improving once they've entered into housing. When we talk about um, supportive housing, we often have kind of this but-for test, and it's but-for the services they can't say housing, but for the housing they can't access services. So it's really important. While programs vary from pro program to program, uh, the kind of guiding principle of everything we're trying to do around homelessness is make homelessness rare, short in duration, and non-reoccurring. And so, I mean, I think... Given that kind of parameters, uh, you'll see variation from program to program. Um, and again, I mean, I really want to emphasize that um, there's not one silver bullet that's going to end homelessness. But I, I w but I think the housing first um, philosophy as a guideline is kind of moving all of us in, in a direction where we stop trying to manage the problem and really find long-term solutions. What are some What are some of the complications involved with this? Maybe David, you can you can address yeah, this. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's a good question. There are a lot of complications, <laughs> and and, uh, and and I think you're right, Rodney, that it doesn't. There's not one size fits all for for each population, and you know there there's a multitude of problems these folks have, and uh, you know we work with uh, folks who are are seriously mentally ill, and you know. As part of their illness, they don't use good judgment. They are impulsive at times. They sometimes are, are disruptive and, and uh, uh, don't get along sometimes with others at times. So we do try to intervene very effectively with those folks and, and, uh, and will strongly encourage, uh, sometimes require, uh, medication, uh, uh, folks taking medication to control their illness, and uh, sometimes, and, and oftentimes, quite honestly, will will require a payee ship uh, for us to manage their money. We manage a lot of people's money currently, and that's key to their stability. If they're going to stay out of the hospital or jail or just general homelessness, uh, they need to to be stable, stable financially, stable uh, psychiatrically, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, they live peacefully with others. And so we wrap around as many services as we can like that uh, in order for them to, to, to be uh, successful. And uh, uh, this type of housing we're talking about is really precious. It's quite rare, quite honestly. These 25 units that Forrest is talking about is, is you know, it's like a drop in the bucket. And if, if our folks get an apartment there, we're going to do our darndest to keep them there and, and, uh, and to make sure they keep their housing. I want to remind you, you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and today we're talking about homelessness and the efforts to find the right approach to reduce it. You can join the conversation, 812-855-0811, or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can ask your question there. I, I want to talk a little bit about just um, mental illnesses, because it doesn't seem like we can have any discussion about homelessness without talking about that. I'm wondering if... With with these permanent supportive housing groups, if if we're not, are we having regular check-ins with people to make sure maybe they're taking medicine? Are we helping them get access to that, or maybe they not getting as much one-on-one -on -one attention if they're not being seen in a shelter? Well, yeah, just in terms of the folks we serve, most of the services we provide are out of the, our 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 building or out in the community. So we do a lot of home visits, a, a lot of work right uh, uh, on on site. We have a PATH program here uh, that is a, an outreach program for folks who are homeless, and we go to the shelters and we go to some of the sites around town with which, uh, you know, folks are living, you know, in tents and whatnot. And we try to, uh, to uh, screen for those folks who need mental health services. And, and so it's a very active program uh, and, and uh, uh, is tailored for those, those types of individuals. We were also looking at just location of these facilities, um, and it seems like, at least in Bloomington, they're, they're pretty close to the downtown area where other people are. And, I mean, if we're honest, because these people who are in these facilities, 
need a lot of help. A lot of neighbors aren't too willing to let them come into their communities. Maybe both Forrest um, and you, Rev- Reverend Fag, can talk about this. Um, you know, why is lo- is location really that important, and, and how do you deal with maybe complaints from neighbors and and the like? Well. Um uh, people experiencing homelessness are our neighbors, so we need to always remember that, that this is a, a community challenge. It's not a challenge of, say, a social service organization or an individual or uh, or anything in particular. It's something that we all have to work on together as a community, and that's really important that uh, in order to address um, this problem, it is impossible to do it alone. It must be done in a, in a community responsive way. We, we know very clearly that a small uh, group of our, our clients are very difficult, and, and we also know that services make that less so. Um, that's another uh, great illusion out there that uh, services make a problem worse. Actually, services are profoundly shown to reduce the number of issues related to um, to uh, homelessness that are associated with homelessness, including reducing crime, including uh, reducing um, hospitalizations, impact on business, et cetera, et cetera. So we're you know, very keen on, on continuing to expand the services because we know they help. They do make a difference. As far as our location, I think it's important for us where we are, yes, you know, and, and location is important. Uh, you know, you, you got some folks uh, that they simply don't want them around. And as Forrest said, they're part of our community, and so they are around. Um, you know, our main campus is right downtown, uh, Wabash Avenue in Terre Haute, and uh, a 100,000-square-foot facility, and everyone in the community knows we're there. We uh, don't... Um, turn our folks out on a daily basis we have them around the mission going through programs to try to help them uh, and to try work with them but uh, when we looked at building our new homes we took an area that was impoverished uh, in the community and and uh, went in there and built the new homes and uh, the people around the area seemed to be quite satisfied with the fact that we came in and tore down some old homes that were dilapidated and people were living in them anyhow uh, sometimes even some of the homeless. And so moving them into those uh, new homes and the people in the community seems to be very supportive of that. And then what steps are you taking to make sure that, you know, when you move them into one of these new apartment complexes, you know, crime doesn't increase in that area, for example? I know that's always something that, that gets reported a lot, but Sure. I mean, first of all, just in of itself, the housing and the supportive services radically reduce crime. They significantly reduce the amount of uh, times that uh, that people experiencing chronic homelessness interact with the police and the criminal justice system. So it saves the community an enormous amount of money just in terms of uh, and 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 impact just in terms of uh, that. It's um, Actually, they found that permanent supportive housing actually it's actually cheaper to provide supportive services and the housing to people who are chronically homeless than to let them continue to be on the streets because it so dramatically reduces the cost both to the both to um, well to hospitals and the healthcare system to um, the criminal justice system and also to local business so. So it's a win-win all around. I mean, it it, uh, it ends homelessness, it saves money, and it really impacts the community in a positive way. I'd like to back up what Forrest is saying. Uh, we, we've done, wrote a white, white paper three years ago and did a quite a, uh, extensive literature review. And we found that nationally 98, there's a 98% reduction in emergency room visits with people in supportive housing, a 95% cut in mental health hospitalizations, a 71% decrease in, in Medicaid expenditures, a 97% reduction in nursing home nights, and this is kind of the big one, 84% reduction in tenants, tenants spent in correction facilities. So actually... Um, you know, you go to any city in America, county in America, and the largest house of the mentally ill is, is going to be your county jail. In Los Angeles mm-hmm. County Jail is the largest provider of mental health services in the country. And um, the exciting part, and it doesn't reduce the hard work that these folks at the table are doing, but supportive housing is a real means to really, like Forrest say, not only appreciate cost savings, but also provide better services. And there's very few... You know, things we do in government that 
can do both. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's really great to see we've got an intervention that can reduce costs and provide better services. Mm-hmm. I want to keep this conversation going, but we do quickly need to take a break. A reminder, we are talking about homelessness and the efforts to reduce it this week on Noon Edition. You can join the conversation at 855-0811, toll-free at one 285 wfiu We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. I'm Sarah Whitmire, and you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, joined in the studio by co-host Gretchen Frazee. Our guests today include Reverend Forrest Gilmore. He's the executive director of the Shalom Community Center. Rodney Stockman is the permanent supportive housing and data analyst with the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. And Reverend Timothy Fagg is the CEO of the Lighthouse Mission and David Carrico. He is the Adult Services Director with Centerstone. Thank you all again for being with us today. And we are talking about homelessness and the efforts to reduce it in Indiana. You can join the program at 855-0811, toll free at 877-285-WFIU. We've been talking a lot about permanent and supportive housing. I want to drill down a little bit and just talk about a specific population within that, I guess, Um, just women and children and how they fit in into permanent and supportive housing and how, in particular, they might be benefiting? I think, I think it's important to remember that permanent supportive housing are for both head of households with families and single individuals with disability. I think the family homelessness issue is also being addressed by what we call rapid rehousing. Um, during the stimulus, um, one of the stimulus programs called Homeless Prevention and Rapid Rehousing, and it really is aimed at um, a good... A segment of the homeless population and families are often in this. They, they'll have one experience of homelessness, and um, as long as it's kind of a shorter in duration, they, they can get out of the system relatively quickly. So I think that's all part of the toolbox uh, I'm talking about is that um, the, but the, gu- the guiding principle is still let's get folks out of shelter as quickly as possible and get them reestablished in the community and provide services for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, um, you know, the, the one of the things that's great about the Permit Supportive Housing Program recently is we just did house our first family. And so some families are uh, fit that category of, of, uh, of chronic homelessness due to disability. And so Permit Supportive Housing is a totally appropriate intervention. Uh, and in other cases, other invention, interventions are, are more appropriate, like yeah. rapid rehousing and, and others. Yeah, I was remiss. I mean, the important thing to remember about rapid rehousing, it's, it's not a permanent subsidy. It's a, it's a kind of a time-sensitive subsidy where folks are given rental assistance for up to, like, 24 months. Um, and then um, they either tr- what we call transition in place where they can stay in the apartment they're, they're in or they can um, find new housing but the idea is it's, it's for people with lower barriers to housing or experiencing homelessness. But again, it's getting them out of the emergency system, which is costly, and kind of where we manage the problem, and really getting them back into the community with services uh, on, a, on a more time-limited basis. One of the things we did in Terre Haute, again, is with our housing program, is we built a facility for women and children. <laughs> And uh, we just most recently made a purchase of an old school 
from the city of Terre Haute, uh, actually the Vico County School Corporation, and we uh, opened up our women and children shelter there. Location, you know, we talked about that earlier, was important uh, because some of the programs that were available to the ladies were not available to them because we were in the county, and so we moved in the city. And uh, we looked at that and thought that was a good thing. But uh, the uh, apartment complex uh, that we have, and we have uh, an entity within an entity, if you will, Lighthouse Mission Ministries also owns uh, Central Eastside Housing in Terre Haute. And so building the new Virginia B. Klein Square uh, at 18th and Chestnut was a program that we was designing for families and for women uh, that are singles. So we have 13 units there, and all 13 of them, I believe, are occupied today. David, is there something different in the approach that you take when you're talking about women and children who are homeless rather than other other individuals? Well, it's it's another uh, uh, complication in terms of it presents a whole different uh, type of uh, problem. Uh, you know, especially making sure the children are cared for and that they. Uh, you know, have uh, uh, adequate supports in place uh, uh, for themselves, and you know, school, making sure school is is continued and all. So it's 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 vital uh, that, that that a family like this have have a place to live, and hopefully a permanent place to live, not not just a shelter. So, yeah, in terms of mental health, we all know that those kinds of uh, uh, homelessness is a, is a trauma. That, that, that people experience and traumatic experiences like this stay with you unless you address them effectively. What sort of rules govern how you can house people, you know, women and children and then folks who might be sexual predators or something? And, and what sort of obstacles does that present then? I think we're seeing a lot more of the obstacles, at least uh, from our standpoint, you know, because there are so many <clears throat> sexual predators who are being released from prison with no place to go. And uh, even meeting with the city of Terre Haute on, on numerous occasions and discussing that, you know, what do we do with those who are in need of shelter? Uh, you know, because that I have children on property, you know, a lot of them are not allowed around them. And so that kind of creates a problem for us to be able to house them and so you know it's something that they're just basically in our community i think they're falling through the cracks it seems like you're in a position where you almost have to choose in in a case like that do you run into that for it's it's incredibly difficult in trying to navigate uh, both of those challenges and issues is um you know with with that potential threat the good news is that in terms of there aren't that many sexual predators, uh, uh, for lack of better words. There are, uh, you know, a good number of people that end up on the violent and sex offender registry, which is different than a sex predator, and can, you can you can actually see that uh, on you. Can those be grouped together? Can you can you have women and children around folks who are? It them? all depends on the individual. You mean in, okay. in in if you're on that registry. Can you? It depends. Okay. You know, some people are on that registry for there's a whole host of reasons that people end up on that registry. Some are lifetime. Some are temporary on that registry. Some are there for being a sexual predator. Some are there for statutory rape. Um, some some are there for uh, violent offenses that have nothing to do with sexual uh, issues. So, so um, that registry is very expansive in and who who it includes and. And what are the and what the consequences are for um, the person's crimes? So. Another strategy that that's um, in the very beginning stages is um, we're creating what we call a centralized uh, assessment and access in um, all throughout Indiana and the various regions that, that um, exist doing homelessness. And the real concept of that is to kind of take the luck out of what kind of housing and services people receive um, and kind of really create a triage. So so the family that presents themselves here in Bloomington, for example, will will have an assessment and then get triaged to the most appropriate program for them. And so so it may it may be a rapid housing program, it may be a transitional housing program, it may be a permanent supportive housing program. And we get away from some of that conflict by by being smarter about the intervention that we do. And, and before I worked for the state, I, worked, I was the executive director of Echo Housing Corporation in, in Evansville, homeless housing provider. And, and you know, we didn't have that sort of triage system in place. And so kind of whoever shows up 
you, you know, you, you serve and, and really kind of whether or not you even have the appropriate services for that, that, that family. So um, it's partly federal money is requiring us to create this centralized uh, access system, but it, but it makes a lot of sense. And we'll be rolling that out um, this fall as we develop kind of the assessment tool. And I think it'll really kind of take away some of those conflicts by making sure that people um, are engaged in triage the most appropriate um, service. Is that something that's going to be maintained by the state, or will that be more on a county? And we, what we're doing is creating kind of the, the framework on a state level because the way we receive federal dollars and then local communities will kind of um, run, run it. Eight five five zero eight one one or one eight seven seven two eight five WFIU is the number to call if you want to comment on today's discussion, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. The website is wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can go there and be part of our live chat. I want to just just quickly here focus on Terre Haute because we've done some reporting about some problems in one of the parks there and homeless people and then how to get them not to, to camp there and bring alcohol and have yeah. fires and things. I'm wondering particularly about that when you have people who maybe they don't want to be in the shelters. Right. We, we've seen that, uh, you know, uh, being at the mission uh, for the length of time that I have and, you know, the winter months, uh, you know, folks uh, really look for a place to stay and, uh, you know, it's cold. And uh, spring comes, summer comes, and uh, and we find that they abandon the shelter and go to the parks. So, you know, Hawthorne Park has always been like that for the 25 years that I've been at the mission, watching them go. And, uh, you know, what most folks don't really understand, and I did uh, talk with one of the fellows from the radio program here the other day and shared, uh, but uh, they don't understand that a lot of these people have an income. They have an SSI check, about $670 a month. And so they're living at the park because they choose to. It's not because we don't have the ability to provide for them. We do have the ability. I have a 250-bed sleeping capacity. I'm not the only facility in Terre Haute that provides. Catholic Charities has a shelter as well. And, uh, you know, so I know that there's a, a bed availability in space, but sometimes they don't want to abide by the rules. And uh, we say no drinking while they're staying there, no drug use. And, you know, we have children that are staying there. They shouldn't have to be subjected to that. And so our rules are, uh, you know, set and established by my board of directors. And, you know, the people who choose to go to the park, they choose. We can't make them stay out of the park. You know, the city has talked with me on occasion in the county. Uh, what do we do with them? I said, well, it's a county park, and you own it, so you can ask them to leave, and they can come back to the mission, I suppose. But uh, they do go there every year. And uh, so how do we stop it? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. All of you, I'm sure, as advocates, are faced with how do you talk to the community? How do you talk to people who want to take their kid to the park? And there's someone drinking right over there. What kind of conversations are you all having to create understanding about the problems of homelessness? Well, I, you know, with us, you know, dealing with the folks in the community and, and you know, their children, they they want to go to the park and they see that. Um, you know, it, it's most difficult because the, the young ones don't understand that. And, you know, of course, there's laws on the books that uh, enforcement departments, I think, could enforce. You know, there's no public uh, container open. Uh, you know, uh, alcohol, and uh, so, you know, I'm not saying put them all in jail, you know, but, uh, you know, they could ask them to leave the park, and, and it most likely would be a pretty peaceful thing. I think most of them would. But, um, you know, telling the folks uh, that, uh, you know, talk to us about it, you know, it's important that they understand that we don't put them there. We don't ask them to go there and stay. They choose to go, and so one of the things about people who are experiencing homelessness is that the world is their living room. And so, you know, there, everything that we that happens in our homes, I'm sure we wouldn't want to be made very public. <laughs> <laughs> Laughter of recognition. And, uh, and that's, that's the case for people experiencing homelessness, that, they are, uh, that their lives are constantly exposed to, to the rest of the world, and, which makes it very challenging, not to mention that many, there are many significant issues that lead to chronic homelessness in particular, uh, including mental illness, severe mental illness, and, and substance abuse disorder. 
Um, and so uh, we're dealing with some pretty serious and heavy stuff that happens publicly. That's why it's important for us to invest in solutions as opposed to uh, as opposed to just uh, shelter or opposed to just uh, Band-Aids. As Rodney so eloquently mentioned it before, we don't want to manage the program problem anymore. We want to, we want to solve the problem. We want to end homelessness. Let's stop managing homelessness. Let's start end homelessness. And that's one of the great things about permanent supportive housing and, and all the wonderful services that are wrapped around it, including the services of Centerstone and, and the services of Life Design, which is creating the apartment and so many other organizations in our community that are working to do this. Other thing that's great, too, is there's been a huge investment by our federal government to house chronically homeless veterans called the HUD-VASH program. Mm-hmm. And that's been operating in our community for many years now, four or five years at least, I think. And uh, they've housed, I think, currently are housing 60 chronically homeless, formerly chronically homeless Mm -hmm. veterans in our community. So we've shown and seen a program that's already working uh, in our community. And uh, so this is an advancement for for clients who aren't necessarily homeless, uh, veterans, excuse me, but... um, and so it's just taking it to that next level. But we've seen this program already working in, in, uh, in Bloomington. We have a caller on the line, so we'd like to go to the phones now. Um, we have Kent from Bloomington. Kent? Kent. Kent, yes. Yes. Go ahead. You're on the air. I am on the air. Yes. Do you have a question? Well, I have questions maybe for Forrest. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Forrest. Yes. Yes. And I am a supporter of Shalom. Thank you. We appreciate that. I bring boots, I bring clothes, I've bought sleeping bags, and I'm 100% in back of you folks. But at the same time, the situation seems to be more difficult with your move in terms of people who are aggressive. And there's times that I have pulled in with coats and other things, and I know wintertime is coming, and basically, I can't even get in the front door because they're out there wanting those clothes, and I, I give them away. I hope they're going to somebody that needs them, but, I, you know, I don't even get in the door. Secondly, would you comment uh, with regard to our folks in the state of Indiana who have seemed to eliminate all of the resources for people particularly veterans that have uh, maybe severe mental or psychological difficulties and cannot get into any kind of state assistance. And finally, I think I heard one of your folks just say something about, and this was Tara Hope, that there was assistance for uh, 661 or 671 a month, where in Bloomington can these folks possibly live for that kind of money when the student housing has increased the general rent in the area of Bloomington so tremendously high? Okay, a lot to get to there, Kent. <laughs> Let's go ahead and let Forrest jump in here on, on your first question. Well, thanks for your support. Just to start with that, Kent, and I appreciate it. We have noticed a significant change over the last several years, especially we're just, you know, I think simply as a product of the increased numbers that we're seeing. Uh, Shalom has actually uh, taken some and made some moves uh, over the um, last uh, f- years and months to uh, try and improve uh, both what's going on in our center and the community. We're actively working with the police to help navigate that situation as well as um, uh, working with um, just this housing program, for example, will have a big impact. Uh, We're also redesigning the center a bit better to make it more accessible and easy to get into and create less of that sprawl around the property, which you're talking about, which I think is is exactly that as a challenge. Uh, um, you know, sometimes aggression comes out of desperation, and so um, so uh, I don't mean to pretend um, that that uh, the people that we're dealing with are all uh, noble um, saints, and they all you know, there's just as any group uh, exists. There's um, there's uh, people that of all kinds of uh, challenges and backgrounds and and issues, um, and uh, just with increased numbers, we've seen increased challenges uh, since 2011. That has stabilized a bit and reduced a bit, and I think we're working on some active things to change that. So, um, so I'm hopeful about that. Um, 
Uh, I don't even remember That's your second the question. The eliminating <laughs> resources for veterans right. with mental illnesses. Rodney, maybe that's a better question for you? Or? Um, yes. Um, the, the HUD-VASH program, um, which is really interesting because it was one of the very few programs that was um, excluded from sequestration, um, provides both a housing subsidy and VA services. So, so when we talk about permanent housing, we often talk about a three-legged stool of funding. You have capital money for the bricks and sticks, um, service money for the services, and then operating money. Because um, you're right, an SSI check will not get you an apartment anywhere in Indiana. I, I recently did a, a study and found that on SSI income, what we call fair market rent, which is the medium uh, rent in any community, um, your SSI income will will pay will be consumed by 80 percent of that of that that rent money. So the rental subsidies are really um, important. Um, HUD-VASH is a really successful program. Um, we're opening up a permanent housing project for um, um, veterans in Gary. Uh, it would be 75 units and another one in Indianapolis, which is about 70 units. Um, in all those programs, um, we're really working hand-to-hand with the VA and really making sure that um, we get service funding because um, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it, 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 at some point, this becomes a question of dollars and cents. And, and and one of the things that frustrates us from a housing perspective is, you know, sequestration basically did a blanket cut of every program um, and doesn't allow federal agencies like HUD to target funding. Um, you know, we can we can live with the decrease in funding. I mean, we have a budget, budget crisis, but um, kind of being smart about where the money gets cut is, is I think, really important. Um, but again, the HUD-VASH program was one of the few federal programs outside sequestration. Homelessness also, I think, don't people know this, but it's it's a relatively new phenomenon as a major, in such a major way, and it really expanded and exploded in the early 80s. It's, uh, you know, it's always been around to some degree, but that's when it really took off in the United States. And that certainly coincides with a lot of things that occurred right around then, uh, including a drastic reduction in uh, financial support for mental health services. Tim, I do want to give you just a chance to respond to that because I don't think you mm-hmm. you were meaning that they could get by on six hundred sixty one dollars. Oh, no, no a there's month. no way they can get by on six hundred dollars a month or six hundred seventy dollars a month. Uh, it's uh, again the supportive services that are available, and so that's what we try to work with them on is uh, to get them plugged into the services that are available that will come alongside them and assist them and keep them in permanent housing. And uh, so that's that's where it is. We just have a few moments left in the program, but we have time for a few more calls. 812-855-0811, toll free at one 285 wfiu You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or visit us online, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition to be a part of our live chat. I want to, you mentioned, the caller was talking about veterans services in particular, um, can you talk about just in Indiana how how big of a problem it is with with veterans? I don't know if you have data on when we're talking about the homeless population. You know what percentage of that is veterans? Um, about twenty percent of the homeless population in Indiana um, are defined as veterans, and, and again, to be defined as a veteran in these programs, you um, have to be uh, in a active theater. Um, and so, so it's not even everyone in serves. I mean, National Guard is outside of that, and so, so it's very, very specific definitions. Um, you know, the VA has a five-year plan to end veterans homelessness, and um, the uh, it's a major emphasis of of a lot of the work around homelessness nationally. And um, again, the the HUD Bash program, while not large enough is really um, really expanding, and I, I think there's actually a lot of attention to veterans right now. Okay. Right. We, we, we have one more caller on the line I think we'd like to get to, and we just have a couple more minutes. So, Victor from Spencer? Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, Shalom was a great deal of help to me personally in uh, late 2008 and 2009. I do have friends from that era that I'm still in contact with, and I'd like to... To uh, uh, 
second Ken's comment about aggressiveness. And I'm hoping that Shalom will uh, make the steps that I'm hearing Forrest uh, uh, describing to uh, make it a safer place for uh, people to come to. As I understand, I have two friends in particular who both have had incidents, um, one who was knocked to the ground from behind uh, inside the Shalom facility over some uh, uh, use of laundromats, another who felt threatened at breakfast and just uh, decided this is too much trouble. So uh, uh, just uh, reiterating, Ken's and, uh, that there has been a definite uptick in the uh, 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 feeling of risk at Shalom since the move. Thank yeah. you, Victor. Yeah, and we're seeing this again. I think we're seeing these things in cities throughout this throughout the uh, um, state. So we're seeing this uh, show up, and and so it's hard to know what's causing that that change. But we have seen some of that change over the last several years. Could be a product of economy and desperation, and more people are. Um, we are we are making steps. We now have cameras on the building. We have a uh, a new entryway and a and a new secure outdoor sitting area that's about to be operationalized. So we definitely have taken steps to make the place uh, more safe. And we take it very seriously when someone uh, acts in that way, they do get suspended, if not banned, depending on the severity of their action. So we absolutely take that seriously. Behavior uh, is is a core uh, element of, of how we expect people to be on our property. When Shalom moved to Walnut, did you start seeing different people accessing your services? Could that be Part of the problem. I'm just. I'm. I'm wondering. I'm sure this is something that you're that you're dealing with quite frequently. It seems like it's probably top of mind. It wasn't the move. It was. This has always the been a bit. A, I think it's the increased numbers, and uh, it certainly didn't have much to do with the new location. I mean, I worked in both locations, um, and we certainly had issues and challenges at the other location. Because simply put, the people we work with, some of them just have very severe challenges and issues. And if we don't work with them, who will? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You know, they, they, uh, we do need assistance, uh, to, need to be there for these folks. Um, at the same time, people do need to have to act safely and responsibly. Okay. And unfortunately, I, I do think we're out of time. It's, it's funny how fast the hour goes. We appreciate you all coming in today to talk about homelessness, and I'm sure this conversation will continue. So for producers Emily Wright and Jimmy Jenkins and co-host Gretchen Frazee, as well as engineer Stuart Norton, I'm Sarah Whitmeyer. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, Addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.